Now, let me start by saying this. There are some odd Christmas traditions that people have out there, right? The first one I came across was the Kaganer. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up online. It's a small little statue you put, uh, you know, right next to your nativity scene, but you put it off to the side because it's not the normal statue of the wise men or the angel or Mary and Joseph or the shepherds. It's a little guy dropping his pants going number two, okay? I am not making this up. It's popular in Spain, Portugal, and Italy. It's called the Kaganer. I don't know why it's a popular Christmas tradition. I don't know who started it, but it's there, okay? The second one, a growing tradition in Japan right now. I've been there three times. I love it, but I didn't know this. Kentucky Fried Chicken Christmas Dinners. I don't know why. I I mean, nothing against KFC, but KFC and Christmas just doesn't sound that good to me, but it's really popular in Japan. An odd tradition that my family has is the Christmas pickles. Do any of you do the Christmas pickles on your Christmas tree? Yeah. It's not as weird as it sounds, okay? You get these two ceramic ornaments or one for each of your kids, and you hide them in your tree, and they're green. They're hard to find. You make them really hard to find. The kid that that finds the pickle first gets to open the first present. It's that kind of thing, the Christmas pickle. It's actually one of my favorite ornaments, too, because when you see a pickle hanging on your tree, come on, that just makes you smile. And last but not least, eggnog. Eggnog, to me personally, smells like, sounds like, and tastes like something you'd be served in a medieval dungeon, doesn't it? Here's your swill and nog, okay? We don't have any more eggs, just get playing nog today, okay? That's what it sounds and tastes and smells like to me. I don't like eggs in any form, but especially not in nog form. I don't know how this drink ever became popular. I don't even know how it's a thing, okay? But one tradition I think we can all agree is great is light. During Christmas, we put them everywhere. We put them on our house. We put them on our trees. We even attach them to our sweaters or semi-trucks driving down the road. And that is a good thing because light is a huge part of Christmas. I want you to check out a few verses. I'm going to rapid fire up here. And they're all from sections of the Bible that have to do with the birth of Jesus. And they all mention light. The first one is Matthew 2.2. We saw his star in the east. That's the wise men talking. Now, a star is, you know, obviously a source of light. And by the way, the Christmas star is a significant source of light. It's a significant star. Because you have to remember the Christmas story happened thousands of years ago. And the ancients believed that the skies were the realm of the gods, that the people hung out on earth. We were land, you know, we were here land creatures, but the gods hang out in the heavens. So when they saw this very unusual star resting over the place that Jesus was born, they would have thought to themselves, ooh, something special's going on here. This is a good thing. It's a God thing because it's happening in the skies, okay? Now let's move on to the next one. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 78 and 79. By the tender mercy of our God, The dawn or the light from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Next is Luke chapter 2, verse 9. The glory of the Lord shone around them. So this is is actually describing a great and quite brilliant light. Then Luke chapter 2, 32. A light for revelation, a light so we can know, we can know what God's like will shine for the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And lastly, Isaiah, an Old Testament scripture, verse, chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen not just a normal light, a great light. 
Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. It's obvious when you read the scripture in its entirety that Christmas and light go together. So there's a few things I want you to keep in mind this Christmas season as you think about and as you see lights, okay? First one is this, light and paradox. Paradox is when two things seem to contradict each other, but upon further examination, you discover that they don't. Light, for example, is a paradox. Scientists will tell us that light comes to us in the form of waves. Light is waves. And in the next breath, they will tell us, no, light comes to us in the form of particles. And you're thinking, which one is it? Can you just pick a side? Is light particles or is light waves? And a scientist will say, yes, it's both. That's hard to understand, and it makes your brain sweat if you think about it too much, okay? You just have to accept it. Life is full of paradox. Our world is a paradox. Any given second, any given moment on this planet, something beautiful is taking place. During that same moment on the planet, something brutal and ugly is taking place. So what is the world? Is it beautiful or is it brutal? It's both. It's brutal so to speak, okay? It's a paradox. We are a paradox. We are aging day by day. The moment you're born, you start dying. Okay, that's a little bad way to put that. But you age every day. You're getting older every day. Yet scripture tells us that we are being renewed day by day and that there's this eternal fountain of youth spiritually inside of us because of what God is doing in us. We are also a paradox in that we are saint and we are sinner at the same time. If you don't believe this, just observe any baby. Any baby will do, okay? When you look at a baby and it's sleeping, your first thought is, oh, how peaceful, how angelic, what a little saint this child is. When that same baby wakes up, it starts wailing and whining and crying and pitching fits, and you look at the same baby that you just declared to be a saint, and you go, Well, you tiny little narcissist, you are the most selfish living being I've ever came across in my life. And we're the same way. All of us from the baby stage on up, we're we're simultaneously saint and sinner. We're not one or the other. We're both. We are humble because we're made of dust. We're basically soil with a soul. And yet at the same time, we're noble. We're amazing creatures because we are the very image of the living God. We are full of paradox. Jesus is full of paradox. He is fully human and fully divine. He's not half human, half God. He's fully human and fully God. He is the victim and he's the victor. He's the one that shone with the brilliance and the majesty of God on the Mount of Transfiguration and a short while later bled on this gruesome death On the cross, he's the victor and the victim. There are many famous paintings of Jesus, and they're called icons. I'll show you one right here. Um, And this is is just one of many. And in many of the icons, like this one, you'll notice that Jesus is holding up two fingers. You notice that? And it's not because he's given us the peace sign because he's on the way to the country fair or Woodstock in the 60s, okay? That's not what's going on here. Many people, and I'm one of those people, believe that he's holding up two fingers to remind us that he is a paradox. He is victor. He is victim. He is fully human, yet he is also fully divine, fully God. All right? And last but not least, Christmas is a paradox when you think about it, isn't it? 
It's a fat guy with a beard, and it's a baby with a blanket. It's both of those things for us. When you read the Bible, you find out that it's light and darkness. It's young and old. It's life and death. It's a teenage pregnant mom in a barn and a dragon that wants to eat her child. That scripture's found in Revelation 12. It's not that popular, but put that in your nativity scene, okay? It's a paradox, and all of this tells us something. We better get to be to the place where we're all okay with mystery because there's so much about life, so much about God, that we can't wrap our tiny little human minds around. There's so much mystery in the world. I want to put up two of my favorite quotes about this. I keep these in my office just because I need to remind myself of this truth. The moment God is figured out with nice, neat lines and definitions, we are no longer dealing with God. So if people come up to you and they try to explain God in a way that mystery is pushed to the side and it's all just certainty and facts, they're not talking to you about God, so don't believe them, okay? Secondly, one of my favorite theologians, Sean Penn, said this, when everything gets answered, it's fake, the mystery is the truth. Way to go, Sean, okay? So this holiday season, I hope you have so much in your life you want to celebrate, but no matter where you're at in your life, if you're in a good spot or a difficult season, know this, you've got something to celebrate. Celebrate paradox. Celebrate mystery. Celebrate a God who is limitless, a God who is with us, and yet at the same time, somehow way beyond us. Albert Einstein once said, the most beautiful thing is the mysterious. The most beautiful thing is the mysterious. And I thought, he's on to something there. Maybe that's why we find light to be so beautiful. Because it contains mystery. Just like life. Just like us. Just like Jesus. Just like Christmas. All right? Light and paradox. The second thing, light and hope. Boy, do we need hope right now. Have you not noticed that about yourself and the world around you? Hope to be, seems to be an item in many people's life that seems to be waning, and it's being replaced by a sense of dread or gloom about their future. And light changes all that because light ignites hope. And let me explain this to you. When God's light, when the light of his presence shines into your light, it illuminates things. It illuminates hidden things. And that can be a little bit of an uncomfortable experience because some of the things that are hidden in your life and my life that God's light illuminates aren't very pleasant. They're our own little private piles of inner ick, so to speak. Parasitic desires and attitudes and thoughts and practices that cause us shame. We don't want others to know about these things. We don't want others to see those things in us. We're not even wild about the idea that God sees them. We're secretly hoping that his gag reflex isn't, you know, initiated very easily. So what's this have to do with hope? Everything. Because as you stand there in the awkwardness of knowing, knowing that God fully sees you and fully knows everything about you, and yet he somehow fully loves you, when that truth dawns on you that you're fully known and yet at the same time somehow fully known, that inspires, it ignites hope in you. It's as if you are convicted about the shameful stuff, but you're not crushed by it. It's like God is saying to you, hey, I'm shining my light into your life so you can see all the ick you've been hiding down inside of you, but don't feel condemned by me. I want you to partner with me in sweeping that stuff out of there so I can replace it with something better. One author put it brilliantly. He said this, I am being seen all the while, 
if I can bring myself to believe it, with a generosity that is wider than the oceans. So he's saying, God sees me. He sees everything about me, but he sees me with generosity. I am fully known, but somehow at the same time, I'm also fully loved. And when you're in that place of being fully known and yet fully loved, that is hope. That is when hope springs up in your life because seeing the bad news about yourself is the exact moment that you start to see the good news about God's mercy. And boom, hope ignites inside of you. You become excited about your future because your future is no longer about shame and secrets and hiding things. It's now about forgiveness and clean slates and new beginnings. Oh, it's a glorious thing. But there's more to it than that. Every one of us are capable of all types of ick and sin and evil. I get that. But there's not just shameful stuff lurking inside of us either. When the light of God's presence shines into our life, it illuminates something else too. It illuminates the heroism in you. It illuminates the selflessness in you, the sacrifice, the love, the compassion. God's light also illuminates all the good stuff that we're capable of doing. Some people look at the world, and I'm like this some days. I look at the world, and I see all the pain and problems in the world, and I become kind of depressed about it, and I think, I don't have anything to offer. Little old me, I don't have anything to offer that can bring any kind of lasting change and good results in this world. Then God's light and radiance shines into my life and changes my thinking because God lets you know, don't be hopeless. Be hopeful. Because you've got something good to offer the world, something that the world needs, something that's going to change the world. It's just been lying dormant in you for a while, and I'm shining my light into your life so you can see it and activate it. So giddy up. And I think God uses the word giddy up. I think he likes it, okay? You know, there are some things that people on the planet almost universally consider to be ugly, myself included, and I picked the three of the things I consider to be ugly. Feet. I just don't find feet very attractive, okay? Especially my own feet. I think my wife's feet are attractive. I look at my own feet and go, thank you, God, for shoes, okay? And some, some people should never wear sandals. They just shouldn't, okay, because their feet are so ugly, okay? None of you, I'm sure your feet are gloriously attractive. But feet, as a rule, are unattractive to me. Bugs. I don't find bugs attractive. They're ugly, they're hideous. I wish the birds would eat them all. And then last, old buildings. I don't get why people leave old buildings standing. I wish they'd just destroy them and knock them over. So I put some things up here. You jumped ahead of me. Let's go back to the first one, okay? This feet. Look at that. I, again, feet are normally ugly to me, but I saw that picture and I go, this is just ugly feet holding an apple, and yet somehow that's a piece of beautiful art to me. Look at this bug, okay, right there. That is brilliant. You should give that to somebody for a holiday present. And then the next person went too far because they took a picture of the bug in their mouth. I don't like that. So then then the last one is my favorite picture. I would hang this in my house, and all it is is an old, decrepit, weather-worn barn, okay? And yet it's beautiful. It's beautiful because a gifted photographer, it blows my mind how they can do this, somehow apply light in just the right way to an ugly subject matter and turned it into something beautiful. It's amazing. Some of you in this room, you are feeling gloomy about your future. To you, if you were honest with yourself, it looks ugly to you. 
It's all about the shame in your life and the pain in other people's lives and in the world. And you have to know this, that God is like a brilliant master photographer. And what he's going to do, he's going to apply the light of his presence into your life. And no matter how ugly you feel about your future, you're going to get a different view of it now because he'll change that and he'll make what formerly seemed to be ugly incredibly beautiful. And you'll be filled with hope because you see your future in a completely different way. My prayer is that'll happen to you during Christmas. All right? And the last one, light and love. In the book of Matthew, there's a brilliant sermon by Jesus. I think it's his best. And he's done a lot of good ones because he's God. Okay. But in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he preaches a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's staggeringly good. You should read it all the time. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. It's just one small part of this. He says to a group of people, you are the light of the world. You're like a city built on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now we read that and some of us put ourselves down and we think, I can't be one of those light of the world things. I can't do that. I'm too imperfect, I'm too grumpy, I'm too impatient, I'm too whatever. I can't do that. The people who are the light of the world, those are those bubbly, happy, clappy Christians that like, you know, paid off their student loans right away, never had a cavity, don't have any shame, don't have any odd relatives, don't have any skeletons in their closet. Those are the people that are the light of the world. No, 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 that is not true. You have to consider the audience Jesus was talking to when he spoke these brilliant words. He said these words to a bunch of people who were a mess, a bunch of people who were an absolute mess. He spoke these words to the sick, to the paralyzed, to the persecuted, to the demon-possessed, to the people in deep mourning and grief, people who were probably laid on their taxes and drove too fast and cussed too much and spent too much time on Netflix, if there would have been things like that back then. Basically, he was speaking these words to people just like us. This is such good news. These people were all standing in need of God. So catch this. If you don't hear me say anything else today, hear this. To be a light in the world, we don't have to be perfect because that ship has sailed for all of us in this room. We can't be perfect. All we have to be is what the people were that he was talking to in the first place. We have to be people who are standing in need of God. We just have to be needy. Isn't that the greatest thing you're going to hear today? Because all of us can do that. We're all needy. Look at yourselves, okay? And look at me. We're all completely needy. I love this. Jesus is standing on this mountaintop, and he's looking at a bunch of people who are a mess, just like us, just like me, just like you. And he says, I see light in you. I see light in you. Now go and shine. Oh, that's so great. It's such a brilliant message. I have a story, again, in my office that I've kept for about 20 years now because it reminds me of something. I instantly ask myself when I'm preparing messages like this, okay, God, you see light in us, and we're supposed to shine, but how do we shine? Well, the answer is we shine through love. 
our acts of kindness and compassion are how the light that God has instilled in us radiates out into the world. And this story is about a church much like ours that about 20 years ago they took a trip to Rwanda. And if you know anything about Rwanda, you'll be amazed that they even had the courage to go at this time. It was a war-ravaged and just poverty-stricken country. And they went into the, the worst of the slums in the whole country in Kingali. And there was a woman there. Oh, my gosh. Please, God, let me meet this woman in heaven someday. Her name was Pauline, and Pauline spent her entire days, all of her time, going and visiting and caring for people who were dying of AIDS, which had absolutely ravaged the country of Rwanda at the time. And Pauline took him on a tour one day. She said, I want you to meet one of my friends who has only got a few hours to live. So she took him through Kigali, and Kigali is just these one-room shanty shacks. And so they're going by all these one-room shacks with raw sewage flowing down the streets. And they finally get to this teeny, tiny room. There's barely enough um, room for like even four people to fit in there. It was just six by six. And there was a woman on the floor, obviously dying, wrapped in blankets. And the pastor went down and kneeled next to her and was going to pray over and was greeting her and getting to know her. And then he noticed out of the corner of his eye, there's Pauline, and she's in the corner of this little one-room shanty, weeping, just uncontrollably weeping. And of course she would be, because she knew her friend was going to die at any second now. And the pastor said, what overwhelmed me about this moment wasn't the death, it wasn't the despair, it wasn't the poverty, it wasn't the stench, it wasn't any of that. What overwhelmed me was Pauline's compassion. That's what overwhelmed me. That's what he remembers the most about in the moment. And then he penned these words, which I have never forgotten and probably never will in my life, and I'll read them for you. In this dark place, Pauline's love and compassion were simply bigger, more. It's as if the smallest amount of light is infinitely more powerful than massive amounts of dark. And that ground was holy. Ah. You can see why I've kept that for 20 years. The light of, of the love that was coming out of Pauline radiated and filled that room with light, and it absolutely overwhelmed the darkness. You know, it's easy, for me at least, to gripe and complain about all the darkness I see in the world, and a certain amount of outrage is appropriate when we see some of the garbage that's going on. But at the end of the day... Our griping and complaining really don't help one little teensy bit. Here's some great advice for you. Don't curse the darkness, light a candle. Don't curse the darkness, light a candle. Because isn't that great advice? Because the best criticism of the bad is to practice what's better. All right? One last thing about light and, and love, and then we're going to pray. There's an author named William James, and he wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experiences, and I don't necessarily recommend it to you. But in this book, he interviews a bunch of people that have had what's called mystical experiences with God. They've had those amazing magic moments with God of extreme intimacy with their creator. Some people call them glimmerings. And he interviews these, all these people who've had these moments with God, and they find out, he finds out that they have two elements specifically in common, illumination and union. 
Whenever people have a glimmering, this amazing moment with God, they say light is one of the first things you'll notice. It's like your whole life and your whole body and your whole mind is bathed in light, which isn't a surprise because God is radiant. He's called the light of the world for a reason, okay? But the second thing, more surprising, is they all say they experience union. Here they are having this amazing, mystical, magical moment with God, and they suddenly become more aware and more connected to the people around them to the point where they all say, with no exceptions, they all say, I start to see people differently. I see them as beautiful, amazing treasures that I want to be near. They have illumination and union. It's no wonder there's an ancient legend that say when groups of angels make their way through the earth and they come across a human being, they part and get out of that human being's way and they proclaim loudly to the spiritual realm, make way for the image of God. That's what they say about every human they come across, including you and I. And I love that, and I actually believe that. I want to believe that. And if it's not true, I don't care because I'm going to believe it anyway, okay? Because angels see humans like God sees humans, as beautiful, magical treasures. So my prayer for you, again, my second prayer for you is this Christmas, may you experience both of those things. May you experience the illumination of God's light and presence in your life, May you also experience union with the people around you. The world needs more light. Let me end with this. As a person who suffers from seasonal depression, and Michael and I were just talking about that because many of you do, the world needs more light. I do not understand how people can live in Barrow, Alaska. I don't get it. Because a couple of weeks ago, the sun went down in Barrow, Alaska, and when the sun goes down there, it doesn't come back up for 67 days. Oh my gosh, just feed me to the polar bears, okay? Because I could not deal with that. The world needs more light, sometimes physically, but all the time spiritually. That's what brings us back to Christmas. Because on the 21st, solstice occurs. Solstice is a very old word, and it means sun stands still. Because the ancients would chart the path of the sun in the sky, and they would look at it with a naked eye. Please don't do that. That'll hurt you, okay? But they would look at it with a naked eye. And on the 21st and the two days that follow, the, the flight of the sun seemed to kind of stagnate to them. And they're actually fairly accurate about that. But on the third day, everything changed. On December 24th, the day the whole world cele starts celebrating Christmas, they garnered this information that the day starts to get longer then, the light increases. So on Christmas, we are not just celebrating with all the people in the world that celebrate Christmas. We're actually celebrating with all of creation, with the whole universe, this fact that the light is increasing. We're not just experiencing more of the sun and its rays. We're experiencing more of the sun of God and his rays, his light into our life. We're having this solstice of the soul. Isn't that good? Think about that on Christmas Eve because it's probably going to be foggy and raining here. But the truth is the light is increasing. Even though we can't see it with our physical eyes, we can experience that in our hearts. Let me pray for us.